Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest criminal case. On January 25, 1959, a group of 10 students from the Ural Polytechnical Institute in the USSR headed out for a trip to northern Siberia. The first few days of the trip went by without any incidents, despite the harsh Russian weather. The hikers were experienced and knew where they were going and about the extreme weather conditions in that area. But at some point, during the night of February 1, while the group was camping at the mountainside, things degenerated quickly. Thus began a desperate flight into the night, a flight from which they would never return. When the bodies of the hikers were found a month later in an unspeakable condition, a string of speculations and outlandish theories became a daily occurrence throughout the USSR, despite the government's efforts to silence the public using police terror. Yet, one question lingered. What had really happened on that ill-fated night? Please join us in discovering the events leading up to one of the most mysterious cases ever to have occurred in Russia over the last 60 years. Today's case was suggested by Jonathan Graveren. To be in one's 20s in the USSR at the end of 1950s meant being aware that working, studying, or achieving success was for the good of the nation. The Soviet Union was still an economic superpower and was proud to have imposed communalism as a socio-political regime in a substantial part of Eastern Europe. The USSR also took pride in its excellence in several domains including science, sports, arts, literature and economics. Very early on, Soviet students acquired a sense of honor, combativeness, national duty and recognition. They were required to excel and provide ongoing efforts to distinguish themselves in the long term to prevent the country from losing face with its enemies. And there were many. The year 1959 was at the height of the Cold War, which pitted the USSR against its long-standing natural enemy, the United States, two superpowers who were completely opposed and who were in perpetual competition with one another. While the Americans could boast about having the financial means, logistics, and technology, the Soviets placed a higher emphasis on knowledge, discipline, and the undeniable sense of sacrifice of their people. Slowly but surely, paranoia began to spread throughout the USSR, and with that came the beginning of the arms race. In primary schools, teachers started teaching children how to load and unload a gun and about different kinds of ammunition. Soldiers were glorified and decorated. Workers and peasants were immortalized in gigantic Herculean statuses. We're ready, they seemed to say. The war is at our doorstep was a phrase that every Soviet citizen woke up and went to bed with, regardless of their age or gender. Days went by and then years, and still no war had been declared. So people prepared even more, acquired more guns and more discipline. As a result of propaganda... Every Soviet was convinced that Americans were all immortal materialistic and obsessed with overconsumption. 
Furthermore, it was forbidden to bring any object that was likely to be associated with the land of Uncle Sam into the country including jeans, electronic gadgets, chewing gum, makeup, alcohol, food, and other miscellaneous trivia. The militia, the state police, were always present and monitored everyone's movement. They even knew the contents of the people's shopping bags, which had to be transparent or made of mesh so that nothing could be hidden. But to be in one's 20s in the USSR meant more than just this. It also meant going to the movies, taking field trips to Moscow and Leningrad using vacation vouchers for spa resorts in the south, participating in the harvest in the Cold Coast or collective farms and getting married after finishing university. Moreover, it was the same time when the events of today's case took place in Ekaterinburg of West Siberia. Ural Polytechnic Institute, January 23, 1959. Igor Alexeyevich Teatlov had just celebrated his 23rd birthday a week earlier. As he usually did, he invited all his friends for a barbecue by the river. The party continued well into the evening and vodka flowed freely. For a Russian, a guest's attendance was the best gift of all, and the person being celebrated was also required to make sure the same guests were spoiled with food and drink, even if it meant being broke and going hungry for days afterward. Your scholarship won't be here for another month, Igor, so there's no point in coming every day. The heavyset employee behind the counter told him sullenly. Gosh, a month? But that's an eternity. Times are tough for everyone, answered the teller with that smiling. As he left the office in charge for the student's affair, Igor turned his pocket inside out. He had his card from the Polytechnical Institute, his passport, two round-trip tokens for the subway, 30 rubles in change, and a food voucher. All I have left is one voucher for bread, milk, cigarettes, two tin cans, and another for a new pair of gloves, and that's it, he thought to himself while counting on his fingers. The trip was in two days, all the equipment had been packed and stored at the room of Sasha in preparation for their departure. At least, this trip would allow him to forget about his financial troubles for a while and it was quite possible that his scholarship money might have already arrived upon his return. Reassured by this thought, Igor headed to the sports club that had joined his school. As someone who had always been playing handball for many years, he had been unable to play during the past season because of a mid-year exam. The boys' locker room reeked with the acrid smell of sweat mixed with the aftershave, which the boys, who had just stepped out of the shower, doused themselves with copiously. Among the boys were Yuri Doroshenko, Yuri Laudin, and Kolya Thibault-Bregnolis. They too were going on the trip. As soon as they spotted Igor, they bombarded him with questions. Are you sure that we haven't forgotten anything? Do we have an inventory tonight? We have to bring extra clothes. It's already done. Strugin pate, sugar, tea, kasha, powdered milk, pickled cucumbers, vodka, lard, chocolate bars, butter, bandages, gauze strips. The girls will take care of everything we need from the drugstore. We'll have to use up all our vouchers put together. As the boys left the club, they checked the weather forecast for the area where they were going. Temperatures were expected to drop to negative 45 degrees Celsius. Well, that was it. Winter had arrived. And to think that the temperature during the month of December had been so mild, minus 8 degrees Celsius, it seemed like the same might persist throughout the winter. Many people even thought that they would need to take out their sheepskin coats this year. But then January arrived and the thermometer plummeted. Today, it was already negative 20. In the subway, the boys were joined by Lyudmila and Zina. 
the two girls who would be joining them on the trip and who were also students at the Polytechnical Institute. Their talk revolved around upcoming exams in random subjects, the trip is Star City, and to Moscow planned for the month of April, and the visit from a scientific delegation from Minsk booked for the month of May. What a schedule! There is still more than a day left behind the big trip. As they separated at the Kroskia subway station, they made plans to meet at the Alapievsk train station in two days at 7 a.m. There would be 10 of them in all, eight boys and two girls for the climb up Mont Autorten. On January 25, 1959, the group met on board the ekaterinburg Evdel railway line, the first stop before the start of their trip. The rest of the trip, right up their destination, would be made by bus and then by truck. The group arrived by train in Evdel on January 25, 1959. Then they took a truck to Vizay, the last village in the Oblash, an administrative unit of Sverdlovsk. Now, let's take a moment to meet the 10 members of the expedition. They had all met earlier at the Polytechnical School, where they became friends and studied together. Igor Alexievich Dyatlov, 23 years old, Zinaida Zina Alexievina Klomogorova, 22, Lyudmila Alexandrovana Dubinia, 21, Alexander Sasha Sergeyevich Koleftov, 25, Rostom Vladimirovich Sobodain, 23, Yuri Alexievich Kravanishenko, 24, Yuri Nikolaevich Doroshenko, 21, Nikolai Kolia Vladimirovich Tibo Brignolis, 24, Simeon Elektorovich Solotaryov, 38, the only teacher, and Yuri Ifmovich Laudin, who was 22 years old. Igor had been selected to lead the expedition, but of course everyone would be expecting to provide advice and give directions when required. The purpose of the trip was to scale Mount Otorten, the northernmost part of the Ural Mountains. At the time of the year in January, the section was ranked as Category 3, which was the most difficult and potentially dangerous, but the 10 hikers had extensive experience as downhill skiers and therefore were in the best frame of mind for the trip. On the first night, the group camped in a bridge forest, Igor wrote in his travel log. January 26, 1959, 1 a.m., day 1. We've set up our tents at the edge of a wood. The air is cold and stinging, my toes are numb, and Zina has kindly offered to rub them for me with Arnica ointment. While Sasha was going through his bag, he realized that he had forgotten his camera and has been sulking all day for that reason. At this very moment, Yuri is snoring beside me. It's been an exhausting day, but we're all excited to be here. The day after tomorrow, we'll begin our trek to Ortorton, which will give us time to recheck all our equipment and the condition of our hiking boots. The next day, after a breakfast of kasha, eggs and tea, the group continued along their route. The snow had covered everything around them. It was fine and powdery, which was ideal for walking. There was practically not a living soul to be found in the remote part of Siberia. The ten friends walked through majestic pine and bridge forest. They put on their skates to get across a river that had been completely frozen. They all broke out laughing hilariously as each of them fell. Simeon, the oldest of the group, took a few memorable snapshots. Once they had arrived at Bekora, the sight of yurts and totems reminded them that they were no longer actually in European Russia, but really in Mansi territory, the home of an Asian and indigenous people who had always lived in the region and who continued to subset mainly due to the hunting and ranger herding as they had done in ancient times. Although the Mansi lived self-sufficiently, they were used to seeing hiking expeditions made up mostly of white Russians pass by occasionally. 
Although they still clung to their luggage and customs, the Mansi also spoke Russian most of the time and freely offered food and lodging to passing tourists who got trapped there by a snowstorm. The Dyatlov group did not linger and merely waved a friendly hand at the villagers and the children who rushed from their yurt to watch them as they passed by. Nevertheless, Zinaida still took two or three photos of a woman and her baby dressed in sealskin and large embroidered fur hats. During the night of January 26, the group moved to a hilly step where they set up camp. Dinner was quick due to the cold and everyone rushed to get back to their tents after one last cup of very hot tea. At around 3 a.m., the group was awakened by the sound of cries of agony from the tent that Yuri and Rustam shared. With his flashlight in hand, Igor went to see what was going on. There he found Yuri. His face was flushed and he was clutching his stomach with both hands. His friend sat at his side trying to calm him. Abdominal pains, declared Rostam solemnly. I gave him an anti-spasmodic, but it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. Yet we all ate the same thing for dinner. That's true. But look at him. He doesn't look well. Igor shined his flashlight on the sick man. Yuri's face, which was usually so full of color, had turned into a waxy hue and beads of sweat dotted his forehead. Yuri! Yuri! Are you okay? The sick man shook his head. No. As he grimaced, the night would be short. The next morning, Yuri's condition had worsened during the night. He was urgently transported back to Swerdlovsk to continue on to Ekaterinburg, unable to continue the journey. It would later be determined that he had suffered an ulcer along with the sciatica, which came on suddenly. The group was now down to nine people to continue the trip. On January 27, they began to climb the mount. Lyudmila's Journal, January 27, 1959, 2300 hours. Will men ever change? Ever since we left, it's been either me or Zina or Zina who had to keep the fire going. When they finished eating, they leave their utensils there and go off to their tents to have a nap like barons. Washing dishes in the weather like this, using only melted snow to clean them is no fun. I'm telling you, when we get back, I'm going to have a word with the institute directors. They'll listen. Late in the night, the first sign of snowstorm began to appear. The small, very simple tents in which the group of nine slept were threatened to be blown away at any moment. Yet, they did not stop the group from continuing on their way up. On January 31, they reached high ground and began to prepare for their climb. Thinking ahead, they first made a stop over in the woods to hide their food supplies and equipment in anticipation of their return trip. Each member of the group was equipped with a backpack, large thermal shoes with cleats, carabiners, descenders, strap ropes, ice pittons, blockers, and harness. Oxygen levels started to drop and for some of them, fatigue also began to set in. They slept on the premises once again that night. On February 1, the group began their ascent on the mountain, as Igor noted in his trip log. They had planned to camp that night on the mountain's eastern slope. Although they all had many years' experience mountain climbing, they were quickly slowed down by the weather conditions, which were becoming increasingly harsh. Visibility had begun to diminish, and they feared a blizzard also began to develop, which dangerously threatened everyone's balance. At that moment, the nine friends were unaware that they were going the wrong way and that they were completely lost. Initially guided by a compass, they got lost along the way as they headed west towards Kolatsiak, translated as Dead Mountain, a sacred summit of the Mansi people. Sasha was the first to realize that they had made a mistake. Immediately, they held a short meeting to decide on a strategy. When it was over, Igor told the group, Listen up, everyone. 
it won't do any good to panic. We're lost. That's a fact. So what I'm suggesting is that we stop here for the night, set up our tents, and get back on the road tomorrow at first light. On the evening of February 2nd, about 10 kilometers from Otorten, they set up their camp as agreed, and the next day at 5 a.m., the group doubled back to take the route this time, or at least what they believed was the right route. Night fell very early in Siberia. At 4 p.m., it was already dark. Tired slowed down by the darkness and the blizzard, the nine students had only one thing in their minds, to find their sleeping bags. But later on during the night, Wake up, everybody, on your feet. Get out of your tents. Hurry, hurry. We have to leave. Wake up, everyone who is still sleeping. We have to clear out. Move it, move it. Suddenly, there were shrieks of terror accompanied by the sound of footsteps rushing in the snow. There was no time to wait around for anyone lagging behind. Survival instinct kicked in at times like these. Has anyone seen Ludomila? Zina? Igor, where did you go? I can't see anything at all. Where they were going half naked in the cold, in negative 40 degrees weather, without shoes, coats, or hats. What could have distressed Igor and his group? What had they seen that was so terrible that it made them leave their camp in such a hurry? Office of the Ural Youth and Sports Officer, February 14, 1959. Has the telegram from Igor arrived yet? Nothing. Still nothing, Sir Gua Alexandrovich. Oh, well, that's completely normal. Let's give it another two or three days. It'll eventually arrive. I'm sure it will, Sergei. Kyra Vladimirovna, would you be a dear and bring me this morning's newspaper and a cup of tea? If anyone asks for me, I'll be in my office. Sergei Alexandrovich Nikitin, a former handball instructor who had become an officer of the sports business after he was appointed with great fanfare by the governor of Oblast, Rosvordlovsk himself, took his duties very seriously. After had Igor, Yuri, Sasha, and Rostam as students, he invested a great deal in teaching them everything he knew. When he learned that the group of students was going on an expedition in the northern Ural, he urged Igor to send him some photos and a telegram so as soon as they got back from Vizay. For the moment, the lack of news did not arouse much concern. The almost non-existent logistics in the remote part of the area prevented the flow of information. Furthermore, even the newspaper from Moscow always arrived a week to ten days late, which meant that the residents of Ekaterinburg always read the news well after those who lived in the capital. Three or four, then five days, and then a week passed, and there was still no news from Igor and his friends, who returned to Wase was expected on February 12. Their parents or relatives soon grew worried as a result of this silence. Had they been in an accident? Sergei Nikteen tried to defuse the situation and reassured as best as he could to the mothers and grandmothers who had already started to drop by his office. February 20 arrived and there was still no news from the group who had left on January 25. The families of the hikers were at their wits end with worrying and begging the director of the Polytechnical Institute to send a rescue team to find out what was happening on the... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Side. Sending out a rescue team was no small feat in the Soviet Union. And without the approval of the governor of the oblast, it was practically impossible to make any kind of decision. The paperwork involved was overwhelming. The days were significant and the signatures of the person in charge was rarely guaranteed. However, time was of the essence because human lives were at risk. I'm sorry, Tatiana, but I don't have a duty log, said the school's principal to Igor's mother. We'll eventually figure this out. Just give us some time. Finally, a group of soldiers were sent by helicopter to the site on February 24, 1959. Without knowing where to begin looking, the soldiers led by Vladimir Korotev and Lev Ivanov split into two groups and headed out blindly with the snow up to their waists. The first day of searching yielded nothing, but on February 26, the campsite at Kolat was found completely abandoned. The soldiers found the logbooks and cameras belonging to the nine students and they planned to use them to retrace the group's route. 50 kilometers further north, they came across another abandoned tent without any occupants. The tent was in poor condition and had been cut from the inside probably with a knife. It was likely cut in haste with a pocket knife, at least that was what the trace of fabric left behind suggested. During the night, the rescue team also found all the group's climbing gear intact as well as their shoes. There were footprints that led to a wooded area on the other side of Mount Kolat, where under a large pine tree, the rescue team found the remains of a campfire and further along, two bodies. They both were males. The soldiers approached them to make sure that they were really dead. They were. The cadavers were identified as those of Yuri Alexievich and Yuri Doroshenko. The snow and the cold had kept them almost completely intact, but their practically naked bodies quickly aroused astonishment. What were they doing outside in negative 40 degrees temperature in their bare feet without shoes or socks and wearing only their underpants? But the rescue team had more surprise in store. And between the tree and the campsite that had initially been abandoned, the soldiers found yet another two bodies that were identified as Igor and Zinaida and who were also scantily dressed. Igor was wearing socks and an undershirt, while Zina had only her panties and a brassier on. The soldiers concluded that they were most likely trying to climb the pine tree. They also speculated that the position of the corpses of Deitlov and Kolmogorova showed that they were probably trying to find their way back to the campsite where the two Yuris had been found. At that point, it was highly likely that this was a case of foul play. An initial report was issued on March 2, 1959, to the government of Oblast, who was responsible for the difficult task of notifying the families of the victims. The search later resumed in the hopes of finding a survivor, and if not, then their bodies. On March 5, 1959, investigators found the corpse of Rostim in the same location where they had found Klomogorova and Tetlov. The temperatures had risen slightly, which probably made it easier to spot them after having been buried under the snow. The four remaining cadavers, namely those of Luda Mill, Sasha, Nikolai, and Simeon, were only identified two months later, more precisely on May 4, 
when they were discovered buried under four meters of snow. While the first victims bore no traces of obvious violence, the final bodies that were found were in appalling condition. The first thing that struck the rescue team was that all four of them were warmly dressed and some of them were even wearing clothes that belonged to the hikers that had initially been discovered. One of the strangest things that they noted was that Ludomila's feet were wrapped in wool that came from Yuri's pants while Simeon was wearing Ludomila's coat and hat. What does this mean? The bodies of Ludomila, Sasha, Nikolai, and Simeon bore signs of unprecedented violence that were unbearable to look at even for the experienced soldiers on the rescue team. Ludomila had more than 10 broken ribs and her tongue and her eyes had been ripped out. Simeon also had emptied eye sockets with his eyes torn out as well as every nail on both his hands. Nikolai and Simeon both had their skulls smashed completely with the blunt instrument. The final discovery, and probably the most terrifying, would not be made known at first. Yuri Laudin, who had to leave the expedition early due to his ulcer, was horrified to discover the terrible fate of his friends. In a Katrinburg visay and toward loves, the news of the missing nine from Otorton was all anyone was talking about. The trip logs, which had been sent off to be examined by the members of the Politburo, clearly indicated that the nine victims had skied around 350 kilometers on the slopes and had scaled the Otorton and Okiochakur Mountains before the terrible event had occurred. Outside a few personal notes written before going to bed, there were no indications that showed that they felt threatened or feared for their lives. So what had happened? Were they murdered? How and why? In any case, it seemed impossible to kill nine people. Perhaps it could have been a nocturnal attack by a bear or some other kind of wild animal. Siberian wildlife was known to be teeming with wolves, bears, and sometimes even big cats. But in the Soviet Union, it wasn't a good idea to ask too many questions for fear that the carnage might provoke media frenzy or worse. The news might make its way out of the USSR and reach the West. A code of silence soon took over to quash any speculations, at least during the period when the first findings were always issued with great secrecy. Three years after the case, an ordinance was issued that stated that any mountain or skiing expedition would now be prohibited in the part of Ural. The initial investigations that were conducted acknowledged that there had been no road traffic in the area where the bodies had been found. The theory that this had been an unintentional road accident or a collision with a large vehicle like an equipment carrier or a snowplow was consequently dismissed from the outset. Some of the items of clothing that had been analyzed in the laboratory confirmed that they had contained elevated levels of radioactivity. Rustam and Yuri Doroshenko, who had lived in the areas of Ukraine since they were children, where radioactive emissions were an everyday occurrence, might have been the cause. Yet this theory was also quickly dismissed. Despite the fact that criminal proceedings were initiated in June 1959, a lack of evidence and eyewitness, apart from the nine victims, no one else had been in the surrounding areas, made it impossible for the investigation to advance any further. From then on, sensationalism would win out over reality and the wildest and most improbable theories would work their way into the USSR.
An initial theory suggested that the dangerous toxic substance had been released into the atmosphere, which quickly made it unbearable for the hikers to remain in the area and caused them to flee their campsite. But upon doing some field research and examining the vegetation and the waterways in the area, this theory proved to be untrue as no nuclear activity was found. Suspicions then naturally turned to a second hypothesis, which was that this involved espionage. It's important to remember that this was at the height of the Cold War between the United States and the USSR. Some would even go so far to suggest that the nine students were actually KGB agents sent on site under the pretext of an innocent expedition to investigate the possible presence of a nest of CIA spies in the remote part of Siberia. Since Western paranoia was prevalent and the Soviets had long been mobilized for a potential attack from the Americans, this theory initially appeared to be the most likely and best reflected political events that swept the country. However, the hypothesis would soon be supplanted by another in which the suspected perpetrators would be none other than the indigenous Mansi people who would be accused of having murdered the nine Russian students in cold blood. The Soviet press, journalists, went on a rampage against this tribe who were previously known to be peaceful. They would be accused of using black magic and even practicing cannibalism. According to news sources, the Mansi were upset at seeing foreigners deliberately desecrating their sacred mountain, the Dead Mountain. And so they consequently massacred the students as a way of warding off the fate. Those who managed to flee were chased for days which likely would explain the delayed discovery of several of the bodies in different places. The presence of mysterious writings in the local language on rocks and trees, including some which were translated as death, curse, anger, unholy, ancestor, and vengeance, served to strengthen the mystery surrounding the case. For many years, this theory would remain one of the most closely corresponding to the way that events unfolded. However, in 1960, it will be refuted by an official report that this was issued to rule out any involvement by the Mansi in the mass murder. The report would state that it has been established that the Mansi living in this part of the country had no animosity towards the Russians and they usually provided food and shelter to the hikers passing through. The location where the corpses had been found was deemed unsuitable for hunting or for reindeer herding even during the winter. The Mansi, therefore, had no reason to be there at the time of the year. This theory would be overthrown by one which concerned an extraterrestrial attack. It's important to note that the Soviets had a rather unique history with UFOs. Ever since the beginning of the space race and Yuri Gagarin's flight, some astronauts returned with some rather far-fetched stories about the possible presence of human life forms in orbit. In fact, many of them had the USSR as their main targets and in the secret archives, which would later be widely disseminated and made available to the public. There had been mention of military bases. The corpses of extraterrestrial had been stored in a liquid, which was supposed to preserve them intact. At the time of the group's disappearance in the snowy mountains of the northern Ural, meteorologists and astronomers had in fact observed strange glowing spheres in the skies over Moscow, Tver, Nikolaev in Ukraine, and in Minsk in what is currently Belarus. Could there have been a UFO or possibly a military test during the height of the Cold War? So was this a close encounter of the third kind right in the middle of the Siberian blizzard? Specialists who had studied the issue also maintained that it would have required non-human strength to be able to rip out eyes and tongues of someone who had still been alive and that even a human being gifted with supernatural strength would simply be incapable of doing any such things with their bare hands. 
Yet the lesions left on the victim's face clearly indicated that the process had been done manually and without the use of sharp objects. In total, 75 different theories would follow in the coming days to be known as Dietlov Pass Incident, each ranging from mere speculation to defined conclusions. The fact would remain unchallenged until 1968 when the Komi, another indigenous tribe living in the southern part of Ural, began to invoke the presence of a savage man of the mountain, the Russian yeti known as Elmatsi. He was described as being a large human-like primate who stood about three meters tall with white hair and impressive strength. He lived in the caves in the Ural Mountains and came out at night to hunt, and denying students come across this fearsome monster during their trek or conversely, they had been spotted by this creature as they were walking towards the mountain. The most likely theory was that the monster was guided by their scent had attacked them late at night while they were sleeping. Those cadavers remained intact and probably managed to escape, but became disoriented in the night and eventually froze to death at the scene. Those bodies, which indicated signs of significant violence, had already fallen into the clutches of the monster responsible for the carnage, including the ripped-out eyes, broken ribs, and smashed skull. Mediums, dowsers, shamans, and seers of all strips would all venture into the scene of the accident under the strict supervision of the military that never let them out of their sight. One of the charlatans stated that on the night of the massacre, the group was overcome by a collective madness, a kind of hysterical state where even the frigid temperatures no longer had any effect on them. This would explain why many of them were found partially nude in the eyes. Various theories came to be declared as the absolute truth only to be quickly disproven and replaced by new ones. The mystery surrounding the death of the nine students on the Date Love expedition was becoming an obsession throughout the USSR. Then one day, Yuri Infomich Laudin, the student who inadvertently saved his own life by leaving early than expected due to his illness, would make some rather surprising revelations, under police pressure as some stated, or of his own free will as stated by others. Laudin spoke openly about the constant disagreement between Igor and several other members of the group who accused him of wanting to monopolize everything as a leader. Laudin even mentioned an alleged fight that broke out between Sasha and Yuri over the affections of Ludmila. This would be soon contradicted by her parents due to the fact that at the time of the massacre, she was already engaged to a geologist from Kamchatka. The possible involvement of Simeon, the oldest and the most controversial member of the group, was seriously considered for a while. Several witnesses, including Simeon's former students, as well as his ex-girlfriend, described him as a jealous sociopath who was potentially dangerous. Was it possible that he took revenge for an offense by murdering his teammates, possibly helped by Igor before dying himself? As expected, this theory caused a scandal. Starting with Maria Petrovna, who was an adjunct professor at the Polytechnical Institute, who refuted any notion of violence on her late husband's part. Igor also sturdily denied the idea that their son had entered into a criminal pact with one of his professors to murder his friends. Had there really been any animosity within the group? The newspapers that had recovered the personal diaries and trip logs of the members of the group would dispute such a claim. Zina has evidence by excerpts from the diary of Zenaida, who was known for her sarcasm and her jokes. Written on the evening before the incident, the teasing tone which she proved that the nine friends enjoyed a good relationship. Riddle, is it possible to warm up the nine skiers with a single blanket? Or even sports? The team of radio experts Dorshenko and Klomogorova have set a new world record for assembling a hot plate. 
The record now stands at 2 minutes and 27 seconds. And so it went. There were so many anecdotes that clearly showed that there was no animosity among them. The final and probably the most solid theory involved a meteorological phenomenon which occurs in Serbia's northern region as well as in certain Scandinavian countries. The phenomenon is called the Katabatic Winds, and it may have caused the death of a teen of Swedish skiers in the late 1970s. Under almost the same circumstances as the Atlo expedition, their bodies had not been found until several months later, scattered in the mountains. And what happened to the victims' families in all of this? Were they given access to the actual documents, expert opinions, and regular updates, or did they merely settle for the version that the authorities gave them? Well, let's just say that, right from the very beginning, the parents and relatives of the deceased student were refused access to the investigation findings. Was it because there is professional or government secrets, or was it simply an outright refusal to cooperate on the part of the authorities? In the USSR, since access to information was limited, controlled and given out sparingly, if not simply squashed, when it became too inconvenient, no one really had a clear idea of the research outcome. All that they were able to do was to recover their late loved ones' bodies in order to bury them. After the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, several top-secret Soviet archives was discovered and made available to the general public. It was not until the period from 2018 to 2019 that an investigation was reopened under the direction of Andrei Koryovic, deputy chief of the attorney general's office for the Ural region, at the request of Igor's older sister. Consequently, a press conference was held where Mr. Koryovic stated that the hikers had been killed by an avalanche, whereas up until then all possible theories failed to produce any conclusive results. Nevertheless, the families of the victims denied these statements, which they believed were made a bit too hastily and were a bit too expedient. We want to know the truth. What really happened to our loved ones on that stormy night? My parents died without ever knowing what really happened to their daughter. The Soviet authorities did not want to tell them anything or even let them see just a portion of the file that was almost 500 pages long. Saying that our loved ones were killed by an avalanche is just too bit easy for them. Why don't our officials persist in acting as they did 60 years ago? Asked Inel Lerontova, the older sister of Zenita recently. The families of the Idilov expedition victims began meeting as a kind of support group and hired a joint lawyer to reopen the case under paragraph A of the Article 105 of Legal Constitution, which delivers the premeditated murders of two more people. The case is still in progress. The Dead Mountain in the Mansi language has been renamed as Peroval Detlova in tribute to the nine victims of the Detlov expedition. Let Ivalinov, one of the first soldiers to arrive the scene with the rescue team and who were at time keep up with the theory that an overwhelming and irresistible force had killed the nine hikers. Later said on Russian television that he deeply regretted making such a baseless allegation. At the time, only Polite Bureau had the power to decide what would be revealed publicly or not. When we were remotely controlled by our superiors, the systems and the state, the invisible but ever-present force, I'm going to die soon and I don't want to leave this world with that on my conscience, declared Ivanov to Ria Novost, a Russian news agency. In late 2019, an elderly Mansi, who had been alive at the time of the event, confided to a Russian journalist Anatoly Steve Coughlin, 
that it was his people alone who were responsible for the death of the nine students. When the law sought him out to hear what he had to say, the man committed suicide. It was also a theory that also resurfaced in a book by Svetlana Oz, entitled Don't Go There, The Mystery of the Dietloaf Pass. It also refers to a nightmare attack by the Mansi, who were angered by the presence of strangers on their sacred grounds. The authorities also mentioned a possible fight between them and the students, which ended in a mass killing. The case greatly intrigued the rest of Europe and the United States, and it generated books, reports, and television series. In 2013, a thriller titled The Diet Loaf Pass Incident was released on the big screen. In July 2020, the avalanche theory would become the one that prevailed throughout Europe. Proven by a team of Swiss and Swedish researchers who conducted an investigation similar to the one led by the Soviets at the time of the incident. This investigation would soon reveal several deficiencies and false leads in the Russian case. Despite the latest evidence, the enigma of the Dietlow expedition still remains, shrouded in government secrets. Who is to be believed in this case and who is not to be? It is very difficult to say. A memorial with the photos of the nine students has been erected in the same spot where their bodies were found. It has since become a pilgrimage site for all downhill skiers and passing adventurers in the search of thrills. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.